Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I'm your host, Kale Clark. In these last days of Advent, I wanted to share with you something that you may have heard of, maybe you haven't, but it's very, very cool. They are called the O Antiphons. Now, what are they? They are seven antiphons that are prayed or really sung, chanted during the Magnificat in the Vespers portion of the Liturgy of the Hours in the evening. And and this is a a special period that's known as the Octave Before Christmas. It takes place from December the 17th to December the 23rd. Now, of course, the 24th is Christmas Eve. And the Vespers prayers for the Liturgy of the Hours for that night have to do with the Christmas Vigil. Now, the the, uh, Liturgy of the Hours is something that must be prayed by canon law, by uh, clergy, bishops, priests, deacons, uh, religious also pray, monks, nuns also pray the Liturgy of the Hours, but many lay people do as well. It's optional for lay people, obviously, but it is a rich treasury of prayer for the church. And this is a great way to reflect on the coming Messiah and to help us prepare our hearts and minds for the Feast of Christmas. Now, we don't really know exactly how these O antiphons got started. There's some reference in uh, the writings of Boethius, who lived from 480 AD to 524 AD. He kind of makes reference to them. But then later on, by the 8th century, by the time we get to the 8th century, they're all over the place in the liturgical celebrations in the city of Rome. Great tradition. So every one of the antiphons, there's one for each day, and it highlights one of the titles of the coming Messiah. O Sapientia is the first one, which means O Wisdom. The second one is O Adonai, O Lord. O Radix Jesse is the third, which means the root of Jesse. Ever heard of a radish? Well, it's a root, right? And to be radical is to get back to the roots. We've got to be radical Catholics in that sense. Got to get back to the roots of our faith. The next one is O Clavis David, which means O Key of David. The next one is O Oriens, O Rising Sun, the rising sun, of course, in the east. O Rex Gentium, which means O King of the Nations. And then there is O Emmanuel. And they're very tied in. Each one of these O antiphons are tied in with prophecy, especially from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah has so much to say about the coming Messiah. Prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So let's hop in. I want to share with you these O antiphons. I think you'll find them very fruitful to meditate on as we get closer and closer to the feast of Christmas. So let's look at the first one, and that is prayed or sung on December the 17th. O wisdom, O sapientia. And here's here's how it goes. O wisdom, you came forth from the mouth of the Most High and reaching from beginning to end, you ordered all things mightily and sweetly. Come and teach us the way of prudence. That's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful antiphon to chant, to sing, to pray, to meditate on. And I love this because this theme of divine wisdom, of course, Christ is the incarnate wisdom of God. But if you think about it, this really focuses on two modes of creation by divine wisdom. There's, of course, the creation of the material universe and all its order and beauty. But then there is also the creation of the unseen supernatural world, which is just as real. Heaven, hell, purgatory. Purgatory is not eternal, of course. It's going to be emptied out on the last day. But having said that, we could also speak, of course, the interior reality, the inner life, as it were, 
of our souls, also unseen to the human eye, but very, very real. And divine wisdom, obviously, is the creator of both realities. I love that. I love that. And uh, in the Antiphon, it talks about um, our souls uh, being ordered mightily and sweetly. And, and this this really speaks to the power of God, but also the grace and mercy of God, how gently he, he works in our souls as well. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But how do we look at this in light of the Old Testament? Well, of course, there are many wisdom books in the Bible. Talk about the wisdom of God. There's a whole section of divine literature known as wisdom literature. Think about the book of wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, in the Old Testament scriptures, there's also the wisdom of Ben Sirach, the son of Sirach. It's also known just simply as the book of Sirach. Think about the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is really interesting because it's very practical wisdom. And there's a section in Proverbs that talks about lady wisdom. Wisdom is really personified as a pure maiden. And the person reading the book is sort of pictured as a uh, a young Israelite who is looking for truth. And, and the writers of Proverbs are basically saying, hey, don't go the way uh, of the harlot, if you will, of iniquity. Do not follow her siren song. It's going to lead you to destruction. You need to hearken to the voice of the lady wisdom. And of course, we also know that our lady, Mary, is called our lady seat of wisdom. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. Obviously, when the wise men find the infant Christ. He's about maybe two years old at this time, not, not well, kind of an infant, a toddler at least. She's sitting on his lap, so she is really his throne. She is the seat of wisdom, wisdom incarnate in Jesus Christ. And this is really where this, this idea of wisdom personified really takes hold in the New Covenant time, because the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word, the divine Word, Jesus Christ, takes on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin, and becomes man. And that's why in, in the prologue of John's gospel, the very beginning of the gospel of John, it says this, all things were made by him, and without him was made nothing that was made. So divine wisdom, again, creation comes through Jesus Christ. And, and John also, it's, it's really amazing what John does in, in his gospel because he picks up on divine wisdom themes from the Old Covenant. And many people think that John the Apostle was, in fact, from a priestly family, from a high priestly family. And that's how he gets into the courtyard of the high priest along with Peter. Of course, Peter winds up denying the Lord. How did they get that close to the trial of Jesus? Well, probably through John. So he's got the Old Testament background down cold, but he also has this idea that the Greeks uh, were really into, this idea of the logos, the divine word. And, and it wasn't really, they just somehow thought there's this powerful creative force in the universe, this, this incredibly intelligent word. And, and, and John is basically saying, yeah, yeah, that's Christ. You just don't know that it's Christ. And so this is really quite beautiful. And so he creates not only the incredible material universe with all of its complexity, order, and beauty, he creates the far more beautiful eternal world of heaven, the new earth that's coming. We can't even comprehend. Just think about the beauties and wonders of our, our present creation, the Rocky Mountains, the beautiful beaches, uh, the micro creations, if you will, the life of the insects. Everything's just so complex, beautiful, yet ordered. There are laws in the universe. And so in creating this, 
supernatural world within us, and there, there's a real heaven, a real new heaven and a new earth for sure, but there's also the reality of our own interior universe. And God wants that to be just as ordered, just as beautiful, because this is the foundation of a virtuous life, divine wisdom. So that's really something we've got to understand. It's knowing how to live. Wisdom gives us the foundation to know how to live. And I'm going to give you a quote, and I don't know who is the originator of this quote. It might be Father Richard Simon from Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. It might be Father Rocky. I can't remember who said it first, but I heard Father Rocky give it in a homily. He talked about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not serving it for dessert. So even though it's technically a fruit, and that, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And so we've got to get this divine wisdom so we know how to live our life rightly. So this, this is incredible. He is, Jesus Christ, is going to order all things mightily and sweetly in your life, in your soul, and mine. And, and, and we see this in, in his own life and ministry, how he, he did some powerful deeds, casting out demons, uh, showed his power and strength. But then he was also so sweet and gentle with the sinner, um, with, with, with children. He, he was so, um, with anybody who repents, he always welcomes them back. He tells the parable of the prodigal son. There's a woman caught in adultery. He says, go and sin no more. And he's just so tender with all who are truly seeking the truth. And we, we need to have this wisdom as well. Come teach us the way of prudence. That's the final little bit of the O antiphon on wisdom. And we, we have to be prudent. We have to use this divine wisdom to make good choices in our lives and be merciful to others, but also be strong when we need to be because we, we're in a battle against the forces of evil, against the devil, against the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've got to love God and neighbor. And that love has to be love that's even willing to give up our own lives if necessary for the truth. So we say, yes, please come divine wisdom. Teach us the way of prudence. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Now, the second of the O antiphons is O Adonai. And that's uh, usually prayed, sung on December the 18th during the octave before Christmas. And here's what it says. O Adonai, and Adonai means God of the covenant, O Adonai and ruler of the house of Israel, you appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and on Mount Sinai, you gave him your law. Come and with an outstretched arm, redeem us. I just absolutely love this. And this is really looking forward to the work of Christ. God, of course, made several covenants in salvation history with his chosen people, made a covenant with Noah, made a covenant with Abraham, made a covenant with Isaac, Jacob, and of course, made a covenant with Moses. And we, we spent a lot of time, and it was a, a time well spent in the Exodus series on the faith explained, looking at the life of Moses. This is incredible. The burning bush is where God really manifested himself to Moses. And he also did it a second way, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Both of those events were really, I guess you could say, mysteries of light, to borrow something from the luminous mysteries, of the old covenant. Because you've got this burning bush, you've also got light when the law was given in the form of lightning and thunder. And really both of those, those, those 
you know, th those are really lit affairs. They pointed forward to the true light of Christ at Christmas. Now, we know also that the fathers of the church called Mary the burning bush because God himself, the holy God of the old covenant, was dwelling within her, and yet she was not consumed, just like the burning bush was on fire, but not destroyed. So obviously the exodus from Egypt, the deliverance uh, through the mighty outstretched arm of God's power redeemed his people Israel from Egypt. And, and it's kind of really a, a sneak preview to how Christ is going to redeem us from, from the devil, from Satan. More on that in just a minute. But I want to talk about a little bit more about the exodus just really quickly. If you read through the Old Covenant scriptures, Almost every book in the Old Covenant somehow alludes to the Exodus. There are so many allusions to it all throughout Scripture, and in the New Covenant as well. In fact, the Mount of Transfiguration, if you look at uh, Luke's account of the Transfiguration, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah on the Holy Mountain. Speaking of Moses, what are they talking about? His exodus, Luke says, the exodus that he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is the second exodus, the new exodus in the new covenant. But of course, in the Old Testament exodus, this is how God founds his people Israel, his ecclesia, his called out people. And that's where the, the word church comes from, ecclesia, the called out ones. So it really, you could say, as one writer puts it, it's the church of the Old Testament founded in the book of Exodus. And God, like a general, marched before the people of Israel with an outstretched arm of power, just knocking out all of the enemies of the people of God along the way. But the way that, that God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, that is a type, that is a prefigurement of this new exodus, Christ's redeeming work. Pharaoh, obviously, is a prefigurement or, or, or a type of how God defeats Satan in the new covenant. Uh, who enslaves us with sin and, and through this tendency towards sin, God wants to set us free. Well, God appeared, if you will, in the burning bush, uh, the thorn bush that was on fire. And then God appears in the flesh and wears a crown of thorns, the incarnation, the passion, and that light is there. Although you cannot see human flame, of course, it wasn't like the human torch uh, like the burning bush, but of course the inner light, the fire of his holiness was there for those who had eyes to see. And so this is incredible how, how, how the two kind of dovetail together. And we want to remember that incarnation, of course, in this upcoming season of Christmas. And on Mount Sinai, of course, God gave the old law, lightning and thunder. And of course, on the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus gives this new law, the Ten Beatitudes. Not that God gets rid of the Ten Commandments, not by any stretch of the imagination in the New Covenant, but in many ways, the, the Ten Beatitudes are even more challenging. The Sermon on the Mount is even more challenging because it deals with the inner person and not just outward behaviors, but the heart from which these behaviors spring. So we've got to learn how to follow Christ out of sin, out of slavery, into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Because he wants to redeem you as well with this outstretched arm of power. But the only way he can do that is if you say, all right, I want your will to be my will too. Thy will be done in my life as well as it's done in the kingdom. So let's do that. All right, one more. We have time for one more here on The Faith Explained. The one that uh, is usually prayed on December the 19th the O Antiphon 
that is O Root of Jesse, O Radix Jesse. O Root of Jesse, you stand for an ensign of mankind. Before you, kings shall keep silence, and to you all nations shall have recourse. Come save us, and do not delay. Now, as I said off the top, a lot of these O antiphons are really taken from the book of Isaiah. You can look at Isaiah 11, verse 1, 11, 10, Isaiah 52, 15, for example. And the kingdom of David at this point had been destroyed. The, the Babylonian invasion, the destruction of the temple, <sighs> Judah was carried off into exile. It was just a, a national tragedy in 586 BC. And this is where it seemed like the kingdom of David was utterly destroyed. The stump of Jesse. There's a prophecy about the stump of Jesse, the root of Jesse. And who's Jesse? Of course, the father of King David. From the stump of Jesse, it was said that a branch would spring forth. Uh, and that's where, by the way, the cult, the Branch Davidians got their name from, by the way. This tree was going to grow somehow from this stump that would become a banner for all the nations, a great tree in which people could take refuge, just like the parable of the mustard seed, because mustard seed starts small, but becomes this huge tree. That's the kingdom of God. And don't you know that in the, in the old covenant, there was only one kingdom that was called the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of David. So when Jesus appears on the scene in the first century and starts preaching about the kingdom of God, people really sit up and take notice. And Jesus is, of course, a descendant of King David, according to the flesh, but he's also David's God. He is also the royal ruler from eternity. And all peoples, all earthly kings, will one day, every single person, will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His origins might be humble. He might look unimpressive to human eyes. Who is he? Where is he from? We don't really know. But his kingdom will be known by all. You better believe it. it's going to embrace the whole earth. It's for all nations. That's what the Catholic Church means. It means universal. It's for everybody. And we've got to play our part in spreading the news about this kingdom. Be heralds of the king. Uh, just like in, in ancient times, a herald of a king would go into a public square and make an announcement. The will of the king is this. Well, this is what we have to tell people. We have to tell people about this kingdom of God, the king that is coming to save us, the return of the king. Forget Lord of the Rings. This is the real deal. This is God's kingdom coming to save you. And so many millions of people don't know this. They don't really know the truth about it. And we've got to make it known. We've got to understand that there will always be opposition to this king, just as there was opposition to Jesus. We're going to have opposition to Psalm 2 says the Gentiles rage, kings rise up, princes unite against God and against his Christ. You better believe they're going to be arrayed against us as well, but God will have the final victory and he will be sovereign over all creation. Lord, save us. Please come and do not delay the root of Jesse. So we'll, we'll talk more about the, the rest of the O antiphons in the next episode of The Faith Explained, but right now we've got a a great question. It's a dandy question on our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag segment coming up right now. All right, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you, you can email me your question. The address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. You can also find me on the X app, formerly known as Twitter. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And this question comes to me from Rob. I'm not sure whether he's listening on the brand new Relevant Radio app or whether he's listening 
uh, on one of our 214 stations across the nation. But he writes, Dear Kale, do you know if the two states in the Union, Virginia and Maryland, are named after Mary, our Blessed Mother? Sincerely, Rob. Really good question, Rob. Really good question. I'm glad you asked because I learned something when I was looking up the answer. I learned a lot, actually. We'll talk about Virginia another time, but I, I want to mention Maryland because one would think that Maryland was named after the Blessed Virgin Mary. Kind of, sort of, but not really. Actually, I, I found an incredible article by Lucien de, de Guise, uh, which was written uh, for the Alatea website about how Maryland was actually named after the very devout Catholic wife of a doomed English king. Now, right now, in our modern age, of course, we have King Charles III and his queen consort Camilla. Well, guess what? In the 1600s, in the 17th century, there was King Charles I and his queen consort. And who was that? Henrietta Maria. And uh, we'll talk about the demise of, of King Charles in just a second. Uh, but Henrietta Maria was the Catholic wife of an English king. That was incredibly rare back in those days, and it was not an easy uh, life to live. Um, she was never actually crowned as queen, and that's why she had to be the queen consort, kind of like Camilla, because Queen Henrietta Maria would never endure a Protestant coronation service. And the English, uh, they didn't really like her. They, they, they didn't call her by her proper name. They would just call her Mary. And that's why Maryland became Maryland. <laughs> so it was called Maryland, and King Charles founded it in 1632 in the New World. And why did he call it Maryland? He named it after his wife because he had already used his own name for a bunch of different places. North and South Carolina, I didn't know this, North Carolina, South Carolina were actually named after King Charles I because Carolina comes from the Latin for Charles. It's not some lady named Carolina. It's from Charles. Now, Charleston, West Virginia, that was actually named after a different Charles, but that's another story for another day. Anyways, the land of Maryland was given over to a guy named Lord Baltimore. So now you know where that city got its name from. And part of, part of the deal was when, when things were signed over to Lord Baltimore, he was given the right to, quote, build and found churches, chapels, and oratories, end of quote. And, and this was great news for Catholics because in Great Britain and in Ireland, Catholics are very much under persecution at that time in the 17th century. And this was kind of a place that they could go, a place that they could be free to practice their faith. Lord Baltimore was a very well-known Catholic. And what his intention was for Mary Land, it was originally two words. He wanted it to be kind of this, this religious refuge for Catholics where there could be people free to practice their faith. And it, and it did, of course, the, the name Mary Land actually did pay indirect tribute to the Mother of God. But, but technically speaking, it was named after uh, Queen uh, Henrietta Maria wife of King Charles I. And by the, by the way, her dad, she was from France, and her dad actually converted to Catholicism in order to be the king of France. He was actually a Huguenot, Henry IV of France. Now, the Huguenots were kind of a, a, an early form of Protestantism, and um, people were, uh, the Protestants were very unhappy that the king converted to Catholicism, but he 
how sincere was his faith? We really don't know. But he, he certainly liked being king. And here's what he said about it. He said, Paris is worth a mass. Hey, if I get to be king of France, I, I get Paris. I get, I get the whole country. That's worth a mass every now and again. So I'll just be Catholic. So was he serious? I don't really know. But his daughter certainly was Henrietta Maria. And so she was kind of married off to King Charles of England. Maybe it's a political alliance, but she was incredibly devout. In fact, when she showed up in England, she really caused a stir because she brought a whole bunch of priests with her as kind of her retinue, kind of her entourage. There were a bunch of Catholics there. And people did not like her. The mob threatened to destroy her personal Catholic chapel in her palace. And uh, they didn't really succeed in that until much later. And eventually Parliament destroyed the contents of her chapel, including, tragically, there was a beautiful altarpiece by Rubens that they wrecked. And she she was an incredible evangelist, Henrietta Maria. In fact, as soon as she got to England, she went about trying to convert some of the leading figures of England. And uh, there was this guy named Sir Geoffrey Hudson, who was a a little person. Uh, He was called the quote-unquote court dwarf. He was only 18 inches tall. Can you believe this? Um, But he was also Catholic. He was converted by her. And he later, of course, paid for this with his life. He went to jail and he died a a very uh, untimely death because of his faith. But she really tried to influence people for the truth of the Catholic Church. And um, the locals really were, they did not like her because when, unfortunately, during this time, persecution against Catholics, Catholics were murdered in the public square. They were hanged, drawn, and quartered. And she would pray for them as they were being tortured to death. And she never made it. It would have been great if she had made it to the Catholic sanctuary in America known as Mary Land. But she never did make it. Charles, of course, came to an untimely end. Uh, His head was lopped off, he was beheaded, and she was banished after his death to a monastery in France where she lived out the rest of her days. As for Maryland, after Charles I was executed, the Puritans began to rise and take over. And although it was a place of religious tolerance in the past, uh, no more. It would never again, the state of Maryland would never again have religious freedom until after the American Revolution took place. So how about that? That is the um, the story of Queen Henrietta Maria, who the Brits called Mary, and she was really responsible for the name of the state, now state of Maryland. How about that? How about that? She was also a big spender, by the way. She almost she she liked to shop, and she uh, long story. But that's another story for another time. But if you have a question for me, I would love to hear it. I'll try to answer it on air. Uh, she almost bankrupted uh, the, the state of England with her shopping, but I uh, need some more resources in the form of questions. So you can send them to me. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also, of course, find me on the x.com app at Kale Clark. And I'll see you later today. Don't forget. On the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, use the brand new and improved Relevant Radio app to share our shows with your friends. You can check out the archives of The Faith Explained. Binge listen. We've got all kinds of new tools, chapters. It's easy to to stream now and listen to podcasts on the app. Share them with a friend. And I'll be back later on The K.O. Clark Show, 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio. Keep it locked here to this wonderful network for more exciting faith-based programs. God bless you. See you later.